Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. I've chatted to people living with dementia, those looking after them, to actors, poets, artists, musicians, filmmakers, and best-selling authors, and every one of them has taught me something new. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum, Kay, lived with vascular dementia for her last decade. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed, possibly in denial about what might be wrong with mum. Sadly, that's an all-too-common scenario. Now, though, through my campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel set of diseases. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to all of us to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, Well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this, too. I first met today's guest six years ago, when I was told that a young actor had written his debut play about a couple who have been together for decades when one of them, Arthur, succumbs to dementia. The playwright was keen to talk to me because he wanted to ensure that his portrayal of dementia and the power of music for those living with it was as true as it could be. As you might imagine, I was only too pleased to meet this unknown dramatist. The request in itself was such a good sign. And when Matthew Seeger came to have a chat with me some months before his play opened, I became even more convinced that he was onto something. His play, in other words, didn't disappoint. It distills dementia, what it is to have it, what it is to watch someone you love being lost to it, into just 75 minutes, pulling its audience into the emotional turmoil that unfailingly accompanies this cruel condition. Matthew told me that he'd been inspired to write it after visiting a dementia care home during his drama studies at Leeds University. For one module, students could decide which aspects of the performative process they wanted to focus on, and Matt chose care homes and applied theatre. He visited Barclay Court Care Home and researched which of the senses triggered the most powerful reactions and memories in people living with dementia. Each sensory stimulation session was bookended with music that might mean something to the residents. Matt witnessed seemingly lost individuals who could no longer speak stand up and sing every word of songs connecting them to their early life. The 21-year-old Matthew was blown away by what he'd seen and vowed one day to use his experiences creatively. While continuing his training at the prestigious Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, he began working on In Other Words. It debuted in 2017 at Islington's Hope Theatre, and I found it very moving to watch. With virtually no props and a scattering of evocative songs, the couple, Arthur and Jane, switch between life before and life after Arthur's condition takes hold. The play powerfully conveys the ups and downs, the flaming rows and never-ending confusion and grief of a married couple experiencing dementia together. The saving grace is their song, Sinatra's Fly Me to the Moon, which never loses its magic for Arthur. And when things get too much, when, as Arthur puts it, it feels like I'm breaking, the tune's familiar phrases and rhythms pull him back from the brink and reveal the tenderness and love that still exists between him and Jane. 
I can do no better to sum up the play's profound impact on its audience than to quote from one theatre-goer who said, Thank you for letting me finally cry over the death of my beautiful Nan. She had vascular dementia and Alzheimer's and I cared for her for two years. After she died, I never cried. I think the pain and loss traumatised me so much. That was until I saw the show tonight. When Arthur was in his advanced stages and the earphones were put in and the music played, that's when the tears began to flow. It made me feel again. It felt so good to cry. Your play did that to me. It seemed to unlock all the pain in me. I didn't know theatre could be so powerful. The show has been staged in Scotland and Ireland where it scooped multiple awards in the All-Ireland one-act finals. But in the last few years, of course, the pandemic has shot our theatres and halted performances. Two tours of In Other Words had to be cancelled. Undaunted, Matthew translated the play into a film, contacting cinematographers and photography directors he felt would relate to the work. Launched online last autumn, it immediately garnered a five-star review. It's now available to watch on YouTube, where it's being offered as part of the Dementia Music Charity Playlist for Life's Higher Educational E-Learning Initiative. The rights have also been purchased for a French language production, opening at the Avignon Festival later this year. So, Matthew Seeger, a very warm welcome to Well, I Know Now. Thank you very much. That was so lovely to hear. Thanks, Pippa. No, not at all. And actually, I wasn't going to start with this, but reading that piece of feedback from an audience member, that was so beautiful, wasn't it? I mean, how did it make you feel to get feedback like that and know quite what a powerful impact your play that you wrote had had? Yeah, that, that one in particular was really amazing. I mean, we, my producer, Tom, suggested that for lots of reasons, partly for funding reasons, we collect bits of audience feedback things like their age, as well as additional comments from all the, mm. the venues on tour. And I was inputting it into a funding bid and I came across, and so many of them were really, really incredible to read. But I think that was one that sort of summed up the reasons. If there was ever a reason that you write that kind of play, it seemed to just be the, the feedback which is so perfectly written. Um, it's really amazing. I, I wrote it, but having played that part probably, I, I don't know, a hundred times or so now, it really is amazing to see how many times you feel like you are having that kind of connection with the audience. Do you feel it as you're playing it? Because we should point out to listeners that yes, you play Arthur as well as having written the play. Do you feel the connection as you're playing? Absolutely. And I think that was the strangest thing about having to do it on film, where obviously there's no connection with an audience. Mm. I mean, it's not a comedy where you, although there are funny bits, it's not a comedy where sort of you gauge the success really by hearing the, the laughter. But you really feel the connection. I mean, it's quite emotional for a lot of audience members. I remember the the first few times we did it uh, in some of the more emotional moments. I thought, for example, that there were people in the audience who had colds because there was lots of sniffing and things like that. But then mm. as the lights come up, you realise that there's it's sort of connected with people that, that emotionally that on quite a large level, there's lots of crying. So, yeah, I feel very lucky to sort of be able to share that with audiences. Mm. And let's go back to what inspired it when you were just a young student and you went into the care home. And I know you said at the time, you know, that once you'd seen at the care home what you saw, anybody would struggle to get it out of their head and you knew you wanted to use it in some way. Just say in your own words exactly what you saw at the care home, because, you know, when I was asking you about what you know now that you didn't then, I think a lot of what you discovered about dementia was very new to you, wasn't it? You realised actually that you were so, as a lot of people do, as I did when my mum got it, that actually one is very ignorant about it. 
completely and totally ignorant. I mean, at that time, I was lucky no one in my family had been diagnosed with dementia. It, it just so happened later on in my grandma's life, and she was in her mid-90s, she was diagnosed with dementia, but that was after I'd sort of become impassioned with the topics. Mm. At, at the time, I mean, I think I was 20 or 21. Mm. I knew absolutely nothing about most mm. things, really. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it was an incredible thing. We would, as I said, we were doing two weeks on each sense to sort mm. of see whether it was like hand massage and things like that to see if anything stimulated memory. And we'd play... And I think at the time we sort of struck gold, but we were just thinking, what kind of music do we think would these people have been listening to when they were in their 20s and 30s? Mm. And so we would play them at the end of each session. I think the first one that we played was That's Life. Mm. Uh, and we'd sort of, we were going around the table, putting these song sheets on these tables so that if anyone did recognize the music, wanted to sing, they could pick up and read the lyrics. Mm. I mean, there were people that had all different types of dementia. They people that couldn't really speak, people that were suffering from hallucinations and delusions. Um, but we played this song and about 60, 70% of the people in, in the room, without looking at the song sheet, stood up and just sang every word to the song. It was absolutely unbelievable. And yeah. I, I, I suppose is, is the reason it's, it's been, it's almost 10 years later and that, that moment is, is still playing quite a significant part in, in, in my life. Yes, absolutely. Because you didn't realise, did you, that dementia meant so much more, that the symptoms could be so diverse, that depending on what type of dementia you get and depending on each individual, actually, yes, it might take away your speech earlier than, you know, than other people. Some people lose their speech quite early, other people lose it later, some people don't lose it, you know, it'll affect different parts. And you hadn't realised that, had you? No, not at all. I mean, I think that now that I know a bit more in a bit more detail, I think really that I associated dementia and Alzheimer's as the same thing, really. Yes. And then also mm. sort of reducing the symptoms to sort of the most obvious or common in it with Alzheimer's. But really, I had no idea about frontotemporal dementia or vascular dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies or anything like that and the different kind of symptoms that they showcase at all. Mm. So coming from that point of, to put it bluntly, you know, sort of ignorance, but then discovering all this when you went into the care home, how do you, as a creative, as a playwright set about really getting under the skin of what dementia is and how it affects people because it's very difficult on this podcast but I did see the play when it was on and I've watched the film and you really do get it uh, which is why I wanted to talk to you today on the podcast because you get the frustration you still show the tenderness and love that always remains between Jane and Arthur but you show not only how how absolutely terrifying, frustrating it must be for Arthur, but how very, very, very difficult it is for Jane. And I know when I went to see it at The Hope, your audience was quite a young audience. And I remember looking around thinking, gosh, I wonder if they were even going to sort of connect with this at all. And in fact, they did because it was very compelling. And when I talked to them afterwards, a lot of them did feel that they connected more with Jane, which, of course, makes perfect sense really because that would be more likely the role that they would be in did you go back and see more people with dementia did you talk to carers of people with dementia how did you go about it Matt yeah well a, a bit of everything yeah I mean I would look back on the play and increasingly as the years have gone by I think it really is her story I think you've written Jane's story there and also I think in order to connect with a story like that it, it can't be a dementia play it's a love story about two people yes. and within that love story, this, this is what happens. And I think you need to, we do a lot of direct audience address and things like that. And I think in 75 minutes, in order for an audience to experience what's being lost and connect emotionally to that, you need to 
invest in the characters. You need to fall in love with them as a couple. Those things are all very important. I think first and foremost, I was terrified about it um, after realising that it's something that means so much to so many people and being someone that was 23 or something playing a part in this character spanning 50 years mm. you, you just really want to get it right so I think it was sort of driven by fear a, a lot as well uh, but primarily as well there's so much out there in terms of research I mean even eight years ago or whatever there was already the Louis Theroux documentaries mm. there was the amazing documentary Alive Inside was already out back then and I think that's yes. probably the one that aligns most closely yes. to the play because it's about music. Yeah so for people who don't know the Alive Inside documentary is very well worth watching isn't it Matt I mean if you just it's google it. It's amazing. It often we reference it quite a lot on the podcast but it is mm. wonderful to see how people who are really lost in a way then particularly with the little yeah, yeah. sort of uh, buds in the ears, they then listen and you see the chap who really enjoyed jazz, don't you, just begin to come yeah, alive. That's, and that's so funny because there's a sort of six-minute clip on YouTube with that guy, and I, I still, when I'm pitching this idea to theatres and things like that, that, that is often a clip that I still send people because it's just right. it's perfect. It outlines ex exactly what happens, and it's someone that also, he's sort of, even if, without hearing his memory loss and things like that, he's, you can see that he's suffering quite physically as well, and that's something yes. that transforms. But there's so much out there. And I think having a base of seeing it firsthand before then deciding I wanted to go and research, that was sort of the base where everything came from. But it's not like this. it's a topic where you can't find lots of things to read, whether it's academic research or things to watch or mm. articles and things like that. I mean, there's just such a wealth of everything out there. So that I felt quite lucky, really. And, and there's even more now. But there was mm. certainly still a lot mm. back then as well. Mm. And then you have to bring your imagination and your creativity and your skills, which you've got, obviously, to bear. And I thought it was very clever the way you absolutely, in a very short space of time, which is what plays have to do, obviously, that's the skill of a playwright, you do show the backstory of this couple and you shift very cleverly between, you know, when they were young and then when they're older. And also you do, as you just mentioned, you speak directly to the audience every now and then. Mm -hmm. And that's great because if you are looking after or if you have a loved one with dementia, I found, and I often used to say, you spend a lot of your time looking back and having those reflective moments like Arthur mm -hmm. is almost doing in the play and you think, yes, that's when it first happened. I mean, I honestly don't know whether the person actually living with the dementia does that because, you know, I haven't been in that position, but I've certainly yeah, been in yeah. the position of Jane, re my mum in my case, where afterwards you think, well, obviously that was... There's a good piece, actually. We might listen to this little clip, actually, Matt, because there's a good piece quite... I think from memory it's quite near the beginning of the play right. and Arthur is sort of saying you know he, he sort of looking back he's saying well I think that's probably then where it all started because he went off to the, oh, right. to yes. the shop he's going to the shops to get yeah. the milk and and stamps and yeah. stamps and yes so let's just listen to that little bit because I think that sort of shows you just that very beginning and that inkling and that fear what was that I didn't say anything. Oh, oh sorry. Just thought I heard you say you were going to make me a cup of tea, that's all. Strange. I'm kind. You are? Why? Would you like a cup of tea, Jane? Oh, really? Yeah, that'd be great, thanks. 
You need to go to the shop and get some milk, though. We've run out. Oh, I see. Oh, and whilst you're at it, could you get some stamps? Got to get these sent. Anything else? Your Highness? No, that'll be all. You're dismissed. So I suppose in hindsight, I think this was probably the start. Not because of what happened, but because of what kept happening after this happened. You know? I mean, milk and stamps. Milk and bloody stamps. It doesn't get much easier than that, right? It's less than a five-minute walk to the shops from our front door. I've timed it. Three minutes in there if there's no queue, which I can remember there wasn't. Which is ironic, I suppose. Um, three minutes in there and five minutes home. That's less than a 15-minute round trip. Easy. So I got to the shops. To buy the... Um, yeah, items. I just stood there. I think it's an interesting point that you make about the direct address, and I didn't realise quite at the beginning how important that would be. And you, you say that you spent a lot of time reflecting, but actually to be able to make something theatrically, you're, you're given the power to allow the character to do that in real time during the production. So yeah. that sort of feels like a very valuable device that I didn't realise quite how valuable at the time. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was just this idea that in hindsight, I think that was probably the start because it's something different. I think we were talking earlier about how lots of people say, or we almost flippantly sometimes, oh, I'm, I'm forgetting this and I'm forgetting that and I'm worried I'm getting dementia or, and things like that. And it's just this idea that those two things are actually very different. Mm. Uh, and in a character who was getting a bit older at that point, he's able to recognise with retrospect very clearly the difference between forgetting something and losing himself in that moment. It sort of feels, I would imagine, and what we tried to communicate, that it sort of feels very viscerally different, those two things. Yes, now that's interesting actually, Matt, because there's another, what I thought was a powerful episode, which is when, and it's done very cleverly, so we'll listen again to it just now, it's when they've been going along to the doctor and then they get the diagnosis and Jane always goes with Arthur and obviously it's incredibly sort of difficult for them both and you use a sort of device whereby Jane is sort of reading out from the notes about this mild cognitive mm -hmm. impairment but how there is a, you know, a chance that it will go on to and then she almost can't believe the word you know and I've been told that by so many people who are diagnosed with dementia that they get to this point and it's the word itself you know they they stumble at it or particularly if the person's a bit younger actually they just yeah. don't believe it almost you know because they say well what well, can't be dementia you know if, if somebody's 58 or something but yeah. let's just listen to the way that you handle that piece as well because the diagnosis is always obviously a very big a very big moment for for anybody what's the damage then doctor your results indicate that you are showing signs of mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. There are different types of MCI, the most common being amnestic, in which the patient, such as yourself, shows abnormal signs of memory loss in relation to age, but other cognitive functioning is occurring at a normal rate. 
On average, 20% of those with MCI go on to develop a form of dementia with amnestic mild cognitive impairment. This would most likely be Alzheimer's disease. Our next step is to refer you to a specialist so you can have an MRI scan, which will decide for the possible levels of amyloid protein in the cell that can now fight the non-coding Why didn't you tell me sooner? Arthur. There was nothing to tell. Of course there is. Yes, I know there is now. I'm saying there wasn't before. Not, not really. That's just not true, Arthur, is it? OK. All of this, it all emphasises the importance of making changes as early as possible. That's the only okay, way... OK, OK. I said OK. Jesus, what do you want me to say? I'm, I'm just... I'm just trying to get my head around it all. Arthur, 20% of people really isn't that much. And it says here that all of this could be caused by something completely different. Look. On average, 20% of those with MCI go on to develop a form of... Well, yes. But in the remainder of cases, it can be caused by any number of internal or external factors. These can include anxiety, stress... Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? I'm just saying, if we focus on what we can be doing to help, because you can only control what you can control, you know? And then it probably won't even get to that. It might. I'm just trying to be positive. I know. I know, I'm sorry. Don't be, really. I know, but I am. About it all. In the same way that people say with lots of diseases and things like that, it's the sort of the saying the word that feels sort of very difficult to hear. I think um, as well, I, I mean, before I had written this or done lots of research, I wasn't quite aware of early onset Alzheimer's or dementia and quite how young that can be. So that adds a whole other element of becoming more aware of what you might be losing, what, what mm. might be being lost. But you are aware that if they are meeting in whatever decade we decided, the 1950s or something like that, then by the time that happens, even though it's quite a long time later, we're not living in a time where the conversation had been more developed about dementia and things like that, and mm. perhaps living in a time where our male character would have been less willing to admit that vulnerability. So I think with mm. that all mixed together, it was quite an important pivotal moment. No, it was. It, it's, it's an important moment in the play, as it's an important moment in anybody's you know experience of dementia, the, the family and the person being diagnosed. And I have to say, really sadly, actually, I think it's still very difficult, actually. I'm not sure it has changed that much. Mm. Um, right. I, often people, you know, friends who've got parents who've been diagnosed or they're worried about their parents, you know, there is often a pushback or somebody won't accept it. It's mm -hmm. it's still there, that. And that also sort of goes to the stigma, doesn't it, which you you don't labour it, but just in these little sort of flashes of it, you show in the way you did that and the way Jane just sort of hesitates and there's a stumble and... And I think, yes, to go back to Jane as well, I mean, what also comes out, which again is a very constant refrain for me when I talk to the relatives of people with dementia, is Jane's, um, oh, the frustration and impatience. And even, I mean, towards the end, there's a terrible, terrible moment, isn't there, when she does actually imagine, and it's particularly powerful because it comes after a rather beautiful moment when she says, you know, Arthur loves his bath and he's having a bath and he's almost humming their song, which is the Frank Sinatra, Fly Me to the Moon. 
But then she also sort of imagines releasing him by just holding him under, you know. I mean, it's a terrible thing. And then there's this awful, awful realisation of what she's just thought. And I think if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but does she sort of say that to the doctor or you play that out? Yeah. And again, I think that must be very, I don't know whether a cathartic is the right word, but for people watching to think, well, yeah, you know, it is something that you're not a horrible, horrible, horrible person, I, you know... Not at all. I think quite the opposite. And I, I actually, it connects quite well to the piece of feedback that you read out at the beginning of the, the man. Who, and he was, he, he was a young man. He was in his mid-20s, this guy, being able to, he felt like that play unlocked him and allowed him yeah, to sort exactly. of cry and grieve. Maybe there's a mm -hmm. connection to that. And I think it's telling in, in the play that that moment comes when Arthur is very happy. So, so I think that proves, doesn't it, that there's it's the opposite of anything that someone should feel guilty about. It's a, it's about understanding that things are probably going to get worse, and understanding that in that moment he is content and happy. And actually, it would be quite a beautiful thing to be able to let him. You're quite right. Stay in yes, that moment. I'd forgotten that because Jane goes on to say, doesn't she? He was so happy, and I wanted to be able to sort mm -hmm. of give that to him. Almost, yeah. No, you're right. So. I know these emotions, when you start really unpicking them, are so complex. That's why I thought it was impressive that you managed to, yeah, to distill it all down into this, you know. Well, it's it's it asks a lot of, of and, I'm, and I'm, we've had three people play Jane over the past six mm. years or whatever, and I must say it asks a hell of a lot of that female actor, and everyone who's mm. played it has been unbelievable to be able to do that and, and sort of get in that moment every night. But it's, yeah, it asks a lot of them because it is very complex, and I think, so it's just two of us, but we play the doctor talking to a fixed point mm, uh, where do. we don't hear that we, we don't hear the doctor's replies, but we can sort of insinuate what they're saying from what we say. Because I think it's difficult to know who to talk to about these things if, if you're feeling that kind of thing. So to be able to have someone that is an outlet for Jane, um, even though I don't think she goes into that conversation feeling like she's going to say that, mm, but we no, really wanted not. to communicate the mm. fact that it just came out of her. She felt like she was unable to keep it in at that moment. Mm. No, absolutely. And the other point you bring out is the way you go for these, you know, what must be terrible, really terrifying. You don't know what the doctor's going to say. And, you know, he's given this little memory task every time to remember the words, which always mm -hmm. terrifies me, actually. You know, whenever I hear it in any sort of depiction of dementia, I'm always sort of desperately trying to remember the three things myself. Mm -hmm. um, and you really understand the panic, don't you? And mm -hmm. then it all just sort of clicks off because... You got very well the way that you go along and then you're sort of, they're left rudderless, aren't they? And then it's like, oh, goodbye. And I think that's reinforced because the doctor isn't there. They are just talking a bit like Gogglebox. You know, they are sitting there watching him and because yeah. of the script. You can tell that immediately that they're obviously in a hospital with a doctor and they're talking to him. But And then it's over and it's like, okay, see you in six months. And so many people, again, who've been mm -hmm. diagnosed have said that to me. It's like, okay, you get the diagnosis and you're just sort of sent off into the world and your life has drastically changed, and then you yeah. go back, and then you just, that's it, really. We'll come back and see me in six months, and you're spinning off. That's quite a long time, isn't it? I mean, mm. it feels like, mm. and you must feel quite safe within the environment of the doctor to be able to ask questions and get honest answers and things like that, but to know that you, the next six months are quite unknown, must be so, so daunting. 
Yes. And tell me what you are doing. I know that first production of, in other words, was done in association with the Alzheimer's Society and Playlist for Life, which is this great mm. charity founded by Sally Magnuson, who actually has been a guest on this podcast. Yes, I know. Yeah, wow. And uh, she discovered the power of music for her mother. And so mm -hmm. it now encourages people to make Playlists for Life. It's a very good title for, for the charity because it's exactly what it does and then gets as many people as possible, gives them access to the buds in the ears so that they can listen. That seems to be the most powerful way for people to listen mm -hmm. to this music, so it goes right inside the head. And they listen and they get the experiences like you see on a live inside, or like you see actually in your play. Um, what are you doing with Playlist for Life then? Because I also see that you've been working a bit, workshops with the deputy chair, Andy Lowndes, the music detective yes, on, that's on Twitter. Right. What do you do with, with Playlist for Life, Matt? Well, I mean, they are amazing. And, and I think they were much younger in their journey when, when I, I first worked yes, with them in 2017. Mm. And, and they're now doing incredible, incredible, and they've held this, all this lottery funding and they're achieving so much. But they, we still work with them quite a lot. I mean, our last tour that we did, live tour, Andy, who's amazing, he came to, well, we, we had someone at over half the shows, a local volunteer would come and do a Q&A after the show. So I would sort of host a Q&A. From and they would talk for about life, the charity. From Players for Life, yeah. And then Andy came and did it three or four times. And he's amazing because he speaks so articulately about it and also just has so many nuggets of beautiful stories. I mean, the, mm. the one that I always ask him to tell when we're doing a Q&A. So I think people struggle with this idea that in order for, so, so they say personally meaningful music, PMM, this idea that it's music is very cathartic and that can be very powerful working with someone who has dementia, but more specifically in their context, it's about music that is personally meaningful to your life in, in the same way that Fly Me to the Moon was to Arthur and Jane. And people struggle a little bit because I think they think that maybe you have to be, because there are these beautiful videos that go around about concert pianists and things like that who can mm -hmm. still remember to play piano. Mm -hmm. So people think that, oh, I, I need to have sort of some profound love for music, mm -hmm. which is not necessarily the case. I mean, he always uses the story of um, he was working with a family in Dundee, I think, and they said, well, this isn't going to work for us. My dad, he didn't like music, he never really listened to music that much. I don't think it's going to work for us. And Andy said, so what, what was he doing during his 20s and 30s? And they said, oh, well, he was just spent a lot of time watching Dundee. He loved football. Uh, hmm. So Andy goes away and researches what songs were being sung on the terraces during those years, gets right. a recording, comes back and plays it for him, and it has the exact same effect as if you were playing a French and Irish song or something. So it's that musicality. Mm. And if it connects to that part of the brain, mm. then it has the same effect. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a great story and people love it, I think. No, and, and I'm told that surprisingly often, actually. Oh, really? Yes, you know, people will say, yes, but it's not going to work. I don't think it's going to mm, work mm. with my dad or my sister or my mum or whoever it is because they weren't very musical. They didn't like singing. It's sort of like you've got to find the key, haven't you? You've got to find whatever it mm. is that unlocks the person. And as you rightly told me, I think, I can't remember when we were talking, but you said that's why you wanted to show the lives of Jane and Arthur, because you do need to know the lives. And, and obviously the best dementia care, basic part of dementia care really, is to make sure that the carers do know the life of that individual that they're caring mm -hmm. for, because the person can't necessarily tell them anymore themselves, but they need to make it their job to find out from the family or whoever, you know, and find out if they were a teacher or what they did or you know the things that were meaningful to them in life and in all sorts of ways particularly music but in other ways too they can then sort of channel their care through that uh sort of filter as it were because they know what's going to hit the spot yeah absolutely I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in that by any means but i think that the way that andy talks about that is it's as important 
do that for the things that you know work positively as it is for you know the things that might not work the things that might be distressing yes um so if you, if, if you know that certain things that can distress them then actually it's important to know that i think before otherwise you have no idea and no way of communicating it mm, mm. so i know you've also sold the french rights haven't you which is great and that was quite a funny story behind that as well i remember when you told me oh yeah it's quite exciting i um so when when the, the pay was was published by Samuel French and there's a bookshop in the Royal Court which is run by Samuel French. Mm, it's a uh, theatre in they, London. Yeah, yeah theatre in London. And um, they Samuel French called me and said that there there's someone that wants to purchase the right for a French translation and we have to sort of go back and forth and okay the, the translation and stuff. And then the actor who had the idea and wanted to buy the rights, he got in contact with me and told me that um, he had been on holiday in London. And wanted to go and see as much theatre as possible. And he, one of the things he likes to do is sort of pick plays in bookshops that he's never he's never heard of before, which mm. mine certainly would have been. <laughs> and so I think he, he sort of knelt down to the very bottom of a Dusty Samuel Bench <laughs> bookshop shelf and picked out this book with a black cover. Uh, and then he told me that he read it on the Eurostar on the way home. Wow. And and he said I just he, he said I burst into tears and I called my friend who's a female actor who he thinks would be amazing for Jane and mm. said you've got to read this. And we've been back and forth a bit now, but it's it's all been cleared, I think. So yeah, yeah, I think it will be happening at the Avignon Festival in the summer, which is a really nice thing. And I, I think yeah. it, I think it just shows that it's this topic is something that connects with people so universally. Yeah. Um, and especially when actually, I would hope, and what's always been so important to me is that at the base of it, it's it's about hope. It's a love story. It's about hope, and it's about how you can keep connected to your loved ones rather than being something that is trying to showcase something that that is purely sad for no reason yes no that's a really good point Matt actually because it certainly is a love story and the fly me to the moon really is the thread that keeps reinforcing that isn't it because that's really how Arthur finds himself but even that has a terrible poignancy to it doesn't it and I'm not going to remember this exactly you might actually because obviously Mm -hmm. you're so close to it all but I do remember thinking that for Jane she comes to sort of love that song because of Mm. all that it means for the two of them and their love affair and their love for each other but she also because it's what he always goes back to it sort of kills her almost to hear it and I think at one point there's a line where she says because it's the only bit of him that's left or it's the only bit it reminds me of who he was or something doesn't Mm. she she connects back to yeah she talks about those moments those tiny moments that uh that it emerged just for a, a smile of recognition or a song, she says. So at the very end of the play, when Arthur is, he he has to wear name tags with his name and name tags yes. with her name on because he doesn't recognise her. And he gets very distressed. And we're trying to show the idea that she is discovering the power of that song mm. at that stage in his life for the first time. So we hear them play it to each other a lot throughout mm. the play. And then we don't for a while. And in this scene, he's very distressed. And we're sort of playing that she doesn't know what to do. Mm. And she, she does it sort of out of desperation more than anything else and then we see the transformation we see him calm down we see him go like hobble over to her dance with her and talk about what happened when they first met when the song was playing which is him spilling red wine over her and that's how they met and so she says afterwards that yes it has this poignancy to her because of all the memories but also it becomes a tool that she knows it's the one thing if things are not looking good that can sort of bring him back to himself and and to her for a little bit Yes, and those times I found with my mum, and I know other people have said this too and written about it, 
there were a few moments when my mum's dementia was more severe, when she would almost sort of come back like that. One thing, mm. one thing was, because it can be phrases actually, my daughter, who was very, very little when my mum was in this sort of stage, played the whoopsie-daisy angel in a, in a nativity play. And so that became a little phrase for my mum. You know, it was sweet. And she'd sort of say, oh, here's a whoopsie-daisy angel when she saw my daughter oh, Emily. Wow. And then really quite late on, she would still use this phrase. And it was lovely, but it did make your heart turn over. And it was very sad. It was just so poignant to hear my mum, who couldn't sort of by that stage, we couldn't really have a proper conversation, but she'd suddenly sort of say something about the whoopsie-daisy angel. And and you know what she's you know what she's thinking, you know what she's referring to, yeah. Yeah. And you'd hope that she might be thinking about her granddaughter, you know. And it is when That's people very beautiful, isn't Yes, it? and but it can be quite difficult for that loved one as well. I remember you're probably too young, Matt, but there was a, a great writer and thinker called Bernard Levin, very clever man, and and he I can't remember what form of dementia, but he got it. And it was you know, very, very sad for his partner. And she used to just walk with him to a bus stop every day. He wasn't going anywhere, but it was just their little ritual to go and they could walk to this bus stop and back again. It was just what she did. And then one day when he was sitting at the bus stop, just sort of sitting, you know, like watching the day go by a little bit, somebody jogged past. And he just said, typical sort of flash of Bernard Levin, you know, it's a bloody stupid thing to do jogging. And she <laughs> said, <laughs> and she said it, it was wonderful because she had him back. It was just suddenly out of nowhere, this flash yeah. of him. But at the same time, it was one of the most painful, sort of exquisite pain. Yeah, so you, you, you know... That's you... very sad, because it's sort of, it's showcasing what it is that you don't have anymore, whilst also reminding you how beautiful that thing is. And you made the point earlier about one of Jane's monologues about how the emotion is so complicated, and it feels like quite a lot of the things that we're referencing show that as, as, as well. Everything we talked about mm. talks about how it is an emotionally complex thing, and it can be both the beautiful moments can also be the saddest moments. And I imagine mm. that's quite difficult. Mm. I know other people now, you know, who will say to me who are looking after their parents with dementia and they'll say suddenly the mother or the father might say, you know, night night or I love you. And it's mm. wonderful, yeah. but so, so, so sad. Sorry, did, did you find that you then would seek out those moments because you'd want them or, or you would sort of be a bit wary of them because of how they made you feel? I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. Yes, I think I would seek them out as a good question, actually, because it's making me think as well. And it is a while ago now for me and right. my mum. But, you know, these things never really leave you in a sense at all. Um, I think you do seek them out because in a way you are sort of constantly seeking out that person who is mm -hmm. your mum, mm -hmm. you know, because it is still your mum or your husband or your wife or whoever it is. But it isn't quite. You know, mm -hmm. they they And you need the reminders, it's 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 amazing yes, to have the Then you also though, I remember this was absolutely heartbreaking and I, my mum was in an earlier stage of, of dementia. And in fact she'd only just gone into the care home and I was told to just wait a while before coming to visit her because it would be too upsetting for her, you know, we were just letting her sort of settle in. And I went and she suddenly said to me that she'd cried herself to sleep the night before and I said, Why? And Oof. And um, I thought she was going to berate me for being a really cruel daughter and putting her in a, in a nursing home, and which is the sort of stage she was at. But uh, mm -hmm. she didn't. She just said very cogently, because I couldn't remember my life. Oh, I know. What a line is that? Yeah. What a line. And, and, and I think it's, yeah, wow. Mm, that's a very powerful line. And I remember 
it was awful because that showed you that she knew. I think mm. there's also that aspect of this when the person sort of comes back. There's this aspect of self awareness yeah. at times. Yeah. 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 And again, that is um, tough. <sighs> yeah. It's just complex is the word perhaps that covers it all. Um, and, and I think, we, I mean, we, we show that when we, we go through these doctor's scenes, we have yes. four or five or something, and, and they get gradually worse yes. in these six-month or year periods, and then worse in the sense of Arthur being more distressed. And then the last two, I would say the, the Alzheimer's has progressed to be much worse, but actually him as a person, although it's a bit more childlike and vacant, actually he himself is in a much more comfortable place from the outside, who, who we'd say internally, but that's certainly how it seems. Yes. And that's very difficult for Jane to see, but in terms of how, how he is, he's more comfortable and he's experiencing the world more joyfully in that moment because there is maybe less of that self-awareness by that stage. Yes, I did see that in your play and I thought that was well done as well. And as you rightly say, Matt, who are we to know, actually, you mm. and I? But yeah, you certainly see that quite a lot mm. and actually just straying slightly off this subject but just to highlight the injustices within our social care and health system that do surround mm. dementia as an illness as a condition I remember when I was trying to get some state funding for my mum when she was her dementia was very advanced and I'd been told by her social care manager that my mum would qualify for this state aid known as continuing health care and we as everybody does, we had to fight for it. And I went along to an appeal panel. And afterwards, the chair, the lay chair of the appeal panel, came up to me afterwards and said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, no, not at all. But I was thinking, what on earth are you going to ask me? And he said, I was just wondering why you didn't apply for the health funding for your mum earlier on in the process. He was asking that because... My mum had done what Arthur does in your play and had gone through what they refer to as challenging behaviour, which would have right. scored higher on her, what they call a diagnostic support tool, which is how they sort of mark people out of ten, as it were, to see whether or not they're going to get this funding. And if she'd scored higher on the challenging behaviour, she might have stood more of a chance. But because she'd done what you show in the play, Arthur does, and it becomes sort of a little bit more contented, whether she was more contented, I don't know. The fact was her disease had progressed. You know, it was worse. Yeah, well. But she was more docile, possibly because of the drugs as well. Anyway, she was more docile, and so she wasn't scoring as highly on some of these categories of her illness. And it was the irony wow. was just awful. But also to ask you that question as if you have some sort of awareness of exactly how things are yes, going to be. Yes, well, don't worry, Matt, I'm quite that. blunt, you know. And I said, well, number one, I was up to my ears in trying to get continuing healthcare for my father at that time, because I'd had to do it twice, I didn't really have time to take on that. And number two, nobody ever tells you that. Yeah, no. Anyway, that's a slight digression, but just one of the ironies, of which there are many around this, and irony is a polite way of putting it. The other thing I was interested in was that um, I've been so pleased to see so many of you young creatives in your 20s Making, I say making dramas out of a crisis, but, you know, making drama out of, well, yes, that's quite a good way of putting it, actually, the crisis that is dementia, or just out mm -hmm. of dementia, you know. There was a period when I went, seemed to go to see a lot. I went to see one called The Lounge, which was in a care home, yeah. but again involved, you know, and then, of course, there was... The father, the father Florian so Zeller's the yeah. father, yes, which I saw. He's a little bit older. I think he was only 40 when he wrote that, you know, relatively yeah, young. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and I know Barney Norris wrote Visitors, which was at, at the Arcola before, in other words, was on. But uh, but he was, I think, in his 20s when he, when he wrote that. Yes. Yeah. What do you think it is? Because it would seem to the outsider, like me, outsider as in outside the theatrical world and the playwright's world, why are you drawn to it? I don't know. Speaking for myself, I think it's because seeing it is something both the tragic side of it, but also the, the hopeful and beautiful side of the things that I've talked about is such a formative experience. It's something that I've, and, and I think when I, when you're in your early twenties, you probably haven't mm. experienced that even with a grandparent, maybe. So it's something that's so alien, mm. but also uh, something that I think specifically theatre as a medium serves really well to explore. Mm. I mean, we, when, when we talk about the direct audience address, but also we, so we use the shotgun microphone to um, loop the voice live and some sort of white noise things that you when did. Arthur was, was going through an episode it would sort of become and then the lamp would flicker and things like that so I, I think it's theatre as a medium being suited really specifically to what it is that dementia explores. Yeah I mean it's the emotions I suppose isn't it are so powerful and strong and they're extreme which I suppose is always good mm-hmm. for I know I mean I have written a novel and I remember when you know people say don't they fiction is friction I mean, you you, yes. you don't. Make... I, I I read your book before it was great. <laughs> it tends to be the the difficult things in life, the friction that will give you that mm-hmm. sort of dramatic edge in whatever sort of art form yeah. it is that you're you're about. And there's another really powerful piece of the play when it starts off fine, and it's towards the beginning of his uh, of um, Arthur noticing his dementia, and he's I think. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, they may have got the diagnosis and they're sort of coming to terms with it, him and Jane. But then she's saying, yes, but we need to get you more stimulation and that and we're going to have this... They're going to have some sort of a gathering or a lunch or a party, aren't they? Uh, yes. She's yeah. doing the table plan and she's trying to involve him. And you can see that she's doing it with all the best intentions. And she's saying, also, so-and-so should go next to so-and-so and what do you think? Yeah, and he's yeah. actually getting more and more and more confused and out of his depth. And then this white noise jarring sort of noise does start and then and then the whole thing just sort of escalates until he really has a flip doesn't he we might just listen to that map because that's very powerful i think we should put sue next to graham Mm. they've always got on don't you think Uh, yeah yeah of course why not or maybe not angela doesn't like them being too close she's a bit funny about that is she Mm. sue can be a bit Woo! <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> but I suppose that shouldn't dictate where we put Graham, though, should it? No, no, I suppose not. Who do you think Angela should go next to? Arthur. Yes. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll just put that down now. <laughs> put what down? I asked you who you thought Angela should go next to. Uh, I, th- I thought we'd agreed, didn't we, Angela? Oh, before I forget, did you reply to that letter from the bank, by the way? What? It's not a problem if you didn't. It's just that I was going to do it, and then you said that you were just about to do it, so... Um, yeah. Yes, yes, I, I, I remember. So have you done it, or are you about to do it? Well, no, I, I said I've done it, I think. You want to put Angela next to him? Sorry, next to who? Oh, great, so did you pay it, then? Sorry, are we talking about Angela or not? Because I really couldn't care less you if she sits next Why? to... No, I said I did, I think I did. You want to put Angela next to David? Are you David? joking, who is David? Jane, can you please Angela? just slow what down? Who do you mean, who is Angela? My yes, sister, Of course I know that. I was talking about the bills, about the bank. You said that you did. I Angela. What do you mean? You never asked me to. What you doing? This is serious, Arthur. What the hell have you done? Look, can you just take a break, please, Jane? Just stop for one fucking moment! 
yeah, so I think that's the, the in, in ways one of the bits that I'm quite proud of in terms of what it, when we're trying to showcase. You sort of want theatrically, if you can, or the plan was, and our director was amazing at this as well, just trying to show. So if you see someone reacting in a way when they've got dementia or being very angry or aggressive, or it would be useful to see what, what they're seeing. And, and that's quite a sort of mm. reductive and simplistic way of putting it. No, I don't know it, what but, you mean, um, yes. Give your their point their point of view, isn't it? It's their what view because of they're the world. seeing they're seeing something. Yeah, they're seeing. So I, the way we did that scene was we sort of wrote there's sort of two conversations going on side by mm, side, mm. and then we gradually start mashing them together so that Jane is speaking about one thing. She's speaking about the table player, and then that's she's speaking right. about the fact that he should have picked something up from the bank. And then we mash them oh, together right. really quickly, and then we yes. speed them up. And then the voice starts looping and then the lamp yes. starts flickering yes. and then the white noise comes in. Yes. So we want to show that that's happening. Arthur gets up, throws a paper at her and says something mm. quite nasty. Mm. But we want to show, if we can, to the audience, the reason why the reason he why. maybe felt that way in the mm. moment. And obviously we don't know what's going on inside his head, but you can use a theatrical device to explain the action in some way, I think. Mm. Well, as far as anybody who isn't actually in it can tell I mean I people mm -hmm. do tell me that that's what it's like it's a frustration and and so difficult for the relatives you know for the spouse or whoever it is who you know mm -hmm. knows as Jane says I think doesn't she afterwards to the doctor or whoever it is she's talking to I know it's not Arthur you know shouting obscenities at me I know it's not him I know it's the disease but how difficult to uh and yeah keep I going know it's not him when he's like that but yeah mm. and, and and i do think as well just quickly what is an interesting point you make about what why it is that people are sort of dramatizing this whether mm. it's on mm. tv and film mm. or or theatrically and i read something really interesting the, the other day from the writer of the tv series it's a sin uh which is about the AIDS crisis and and he said something really interesting that he kind of thinks that we're living in a time where people although documentaries are will always be a beautiful way of explaining things actually we're living in a time where people are quite hungry to see these things through a more dramatic lens i don't know whether it's because you can connect with it more in, emotionally or you invest in characters but i think with lots of topics that are very important and that's why i, I, I don't know if you saw help which was with stephen graham and jody Comer, which is set in a care home over the pandemic, which was beautiful and felt like a call to arms. I felt angry watching it, but mm. I, I sort of feel like I not understand what he said. We, we're living in a time where people are quite hungry to see things dramatically. And actually, I think that's a reason why people are exploring this kind of topic in that kind of way. Yes. Well, thank you. That, that was fascinating. Really fascinating to get your sort of insider's view, having seen the finished product, which I have to say... You know, I would advise anybody, I would encourage anybody to look at the... It's YouTube now, isn't it, that they would get yes, it? Yes, it's on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if they just Google, in other words, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is quite powerful. You know, if you're going through it right now, it's quite a difficult watch. But I'd say, really, you've got all the elements in there and you have got the love and you have got the tenderness but the oh, frustration yeah, and you. the grief. I, I, I really and... hope so, yeah. Mm. It feels very important, so mm. thank you very much. No, I felt quite... Um, not worried, you know, but sort of cautious and thinking, oh, I wonder, I wonder if you've got it when I went to see the play in Islington. And um, no, I, I thought you did it very well. So thank you, Matt, thank you and good much. luck with everything in the future. You're still very much into, in other words, are you? Have you got other plays? And Yeah, I think we've, we've got one more live run of, in other words, in us. I'd really love to find a nice theatre in London for mm. it. Mm. So that's sort of the next plan, I, I would hope, maybe. Mm. 2023 I think these things take so long and yeah. theatre still feels like it's just finding its feet especially sort of regional theatre again yeah 
Well, thank you very much and all the very best of luck and well done. Well done on what you've done. Thank you very much. That was really, really nice to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. There is something very special about young people choosing to explore through art, language, music, or some other creative medium, a topic more associated with old age. And when they get it so right, as Matt Seeger did in the case of In Other Words, it holds rare beauty and poignancy. The young head and the mature, damaged brain, the vitality of youth and the sadness of loss all come together in a heart-rending love story. It was so interesting, too, to hear Matt speak of witnessing the impact of meaningful music on those with dementia while a university student and then describing how he used drama and dramatic devices such as directly addressing the audience using visual and sound effects to create his extraordinary play. As anyone who follows my writing and podcast will know, I'm a great believer in the soft power of culture, of the arts, music, television and theatre to influence people, change perceptions and to increase awareness of dementia. Matt Seeger embodies this subtle yet effective power, a young playwright, who has combined first-hand experience, deep research and creative talent to produce a stunning piece of theatre. Two actors, very few props, 75 minutes, and the result is profound and transformative. I'd urge listeners to see, in other words, whether online now on YouTube or when it returns for its final stage run. And I very much look forward to seeing what Matthew Seeger does next. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.